that's when I started to really get to grips with how uh, the behavior of the organization really impacts the employee, right? How the organization, how leadership is behaving, uh, how they're showing up every day. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Better Happy Podcast, hosted by myself, Mike Jones. On the Better Happy Podcast, we answer the big question, how do people-focused business owners and business leaders create cultures that deliver exceptional results whilst looking after the health and happiness of their people and without burning people out? Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have Emmett Colville with me. Emmett is a behavioral psychologist. He works with a variety of different people and different organizations under his organization, U Parallel. And there's a little blurb on Emmett's website uh, that I would like to read to you because I think it gives a good overview of what he does in the workplace because that is a part, a key part of Emmett's offering. So uh, U Parallel supports employees experiencing common emotional health and well-being problems such as worry, stress, and so on. We also train the skills that enhance general resilience, life satisfaction, and behavioral effectiveness. So that's a brief intro to you, Emmett. How about you? Well, first of all, thank you for joining us today. I should probably let you talk. All right. Well, great to be here. A pleasure to be uh, invited on. Um, I'm not going to lie. It's these these uh, podcasts do tend to increase my anxiety somewhat, but well, already so glad to be here. Right. So that perhaps that's something yeah. we'll today. I remember for me. When I was first doing work with um, Ross McIntosh, and he shared with me some of the things he struggles with, and I remember thinking, "Wow, you're a psychologist. That's that can't mm. be right. You struggle with stuff." And it's like this this understanding that we're all just human beings, right? I think we tend to have this notion that if you've got a degree in psychology, you've figured out the mind, <laughs> so, you know, so no more issues for you. But that's very untrue, right? No, I mean I get caught out, uh, just like everyone else, especially when I'm doing something that's important. Uh, when we're trying to push out an important message and to help people, but I do get caught out. I'm just noticing my hands are sweaty and my heart is beating a bit fast, but um, I'm doing something that's important. So that tells and me, and that's a theme. That's that, a good thing. That's a theme that we'll talk about today, right? Because we both share an interest in something called ACT, which I'm sure we'll dig into. Which, which really has the underlying message of it's about taking action even when you're uncomfortable right that's what life mm. leads to us being happier um tell us a little bit Emmett before we start digging into some tips and insights and thoughts and um tidbits for people that lead people um how to do that better and how to better lead themselves just give us a little overview of how you got into being a behavioral slash organizational psychologist and doing the kind of work that you do You know, I've often th I've thought about this many times, and now that you're asking me, my mind is kicking off. It's like find that answer, find the answer quick. Um, yeah. But I think my passion for making or helping uh, the experience of employees uh, not suck in the workplace came from um, being managed in a way that made me feel like I was uh, being strangled or my uh, well, I had no control over my job. Mm -hmm. uh, it was micromanaged. Um, there was a lot of rules and bureaucracy that kind of held me back from doing good work. So I'll probably take you back to 2010. I started uh, working in financial services 
And how, how old were you then, Emmett? Ooh, how, how, roughly 12, 13 years. What, oh, God, what's the math? Uh, 25? 26. So, first, so first job, well, not first job, but one of your earlier 26. jobs, and you were in sure, a... yeah. Well, <clears throat> I graduated in uh 2009, and it was just the worst time to graduate. My plan was to go into uh, work as an assistant psychologist for the NHS. Yeah. I tried and failed, couldn't get into it, and I had to pivot, right? Due to the, due to the recession, yeah. Absolutely. Post post uh, two thousand and eight, the fallout from that. Yep. And that I, you know, you can sit sit back and watch the world go by. You can think of ways to try and pivot. And uh, I pivoted and thought, well, I'm going to have to do something that I didn't think I'd ever have to do, which is to work in financial services. So I went in and at. Um, a customer service account account management level and i quickly realized that the way that the organized the, the team was being run or managed it was more about command and control and for me that felt like um suffocating so my plan was to work my way up and and move move out of that role so i should put, probably point out that Whilst I felt like that, looking back, I can appreciate uh, a lot of the reasons behind why managers behave in particular ways. Um, yeah, I, I, I met my first professional um, career was the military, and and probably quite similar, right? If you if you're going to get micromanaged, then the military is certainly a place that that's there's a high likelihood of that happening, and and you certainly don't have the opportunity to be innovative, to be creative, and to and to and to flourish you kind of um mm. and, and you're graded on your ability to follow instructions right and be disciplined so uh i certainly didn't have the best experience in that career but i also look back and wouldn't change it and and, and it can again see mm. can see many of the benefits to to going through that experience but you absolutely did, i'm thinking there was so so probably similar i i've had some very positive experiences in my in my roles, in my professional, um, in my jobs, um, and I've had some very, some very negative experiences. And the thing that I've noticed is the experience that you have at work has a huge knock-on effect to how you feel and function as a human being outside of work, which is unsurprising, really, if we zoom mm. out. But even before this experience with you at twenty-five, you've chosen to do behavioural psychology or organisational psychology at the University of London. Yes, I studied my. Master's degree in organisation psychology at City University. Yeah. So what led to you choosing that? What What do you think? What do you think was floating around your mind in your younger years to make you think I'm interested in the the human psyche and behaviour? Was sorry, did you say it was organisational psychology? Well, it was organisational psychology, but my my undergrad degree is in psychology. Okay. Like, so I pursued. There's a theme there. Um, yeah. I I've was fascinated by human behaviour because I used to watch um, Cracker. As a young lad, uh, Robbie Coltrane. Yeah. I used to watch Taggart, um, and for some reason, I, I well, clearly pursuing a, a purpose with no terminal endpoint at that point, even though I didn't realise at that age of nineteen, leaving Ireland, moved to Scotland, studied my undergrad, undergrad there, mm. thinking I would become <clears throat> a forensic psychologist, and 
the, the recession happened. I then went into financial services. I worked my way into um, quality control within financial services from customer service and, and account management. Then I went into internal communications. And that's when I started to really get to grips with how uh, the behavior of the organization really impacts the employee, right? How the organization, how leadership is behaving, uh, how they're showing up every day, um, the language that they use. When you say that, the behavior of the organization, because um, mm. I, 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 I struggle with this. So, so the organization or the business isn't really a thing, right? It's a concept. It's like, it, it doesn't that you can't go and find the organization in a room so when you say the behavior of the organization mm. and you did allude to this after is this, is this what you mean like how the leadership team compose themselves sure yeah leadership middle management how they show up uh, the types of behaviors that they elicit every day um the things this is rooted in the culture really it's the everyday mm -hmm. behaviors that signal to the employee this Just and you see a misalignment with what they say versus what they do for me anyway someone who's incredibly um, analytic and mm. um, who pushes against authority I mean, we could go further back into my childhood, but I let's do that. I, I'm interested in. I've got two. I've got two things that are coming out already. So, first of all, I'm interested in why this is so. Why do you think this is so common? Why? Because it is common, right? Why is it so common that people in leadership positions and just the general culture of organisations tend to go to not what it should be? So, I'd like to dig into that a little bit because I, I mm. have theory that I don't think it's out of malice. I think it's just humans being humans um but, but i think that's a good conversation for us to have but yeah mm. you just talked a little bit about you there being very analytical but also pushing back against authority potentially mm. in different situations and then you said we could go back into my childhood i think that's interesting <laughs> I think it, it, it helps us understand you as a character so uh do it let's go then. yeah i mean This isn't difficult for me to talk about, but it's 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 a story that I've been grappling with. And, and I think the more I can tell this story, the more free I will become, I suppose. So I'm, I'm happy to do it. But I think it, it goes to my my um, parents separated in 1989. Um, my father was a very, pardon me. Sorry, what age oh, I was four years old. Four years old, yeah. Um, but I won't go into the whole backstory, but essentially my mum became a single parent and I have seven brothers, three sisters, big family. And, and the, the parenting aspect, I suppose, was lots of love and lots of care, but we... There was no there was no authority there was there was no parenting going on around rules and what to do what not to do yep my mom did her best of course but if, I, I was reared by my older brothers really in many ways so any if any so you said you had seven sisters three brothers is that right? se seven brothers three oh, sisters wow okay yeah. seven brothers three yeah. sisters and where did you Big sit family. in regards to age in that i was 
the like third <laughs> third youngest the third youngest okay right yeah and um i think male any male uh character that came into our lives was just it, it was a a no-no mm -hmm. for for us um of course we can you know the psychology all of that yep. matters but i think that's where, where it comes from um but also injustice. I think I've seen, I grew up a lot watching, I grew up watching uh, Cracker, I grew up watching Taggart, I grew up watching things being done to people, bad things. And I didn't, I, I, I guess in some way I made a, a secret promise to myself that I wouldn't allow those things to happen to me. Um, so if yeah. you grew up, I resonate with this so much. So parents separated, and I and I think there's a lot in this um, theme where if there's an absent father, there is often if the mum's still there, but not always, a lot of love and a lot of support and care, but a lack of discipline and structure, which creates mm. a difficult situation, I think, and it does lead to a lot of rebellion and um, potentially lots of issues in, in society when the when a, when a young man especially doesn't have. That. Mm discipline and, and confidence that comes from having that 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 authority figure right so but out of interest for you so you're in this you're you've got a unique situation there really that you're in this group of 10 you're one of the youngest were mm. you treated fairly or were you kind of just as you would expect from a group of um young lads were you kind of like bit be not beaten up but kind of led well or... the <clears throat> I suppose the family was broken down into two groups. There was the older group and then the younger group. The older group sort of flew the nest, uh, three or four or four of my siblings. Um, and then I had my two older brothers and my uh, younger siblings. So I, I, I mean, my, <laughs> my sister used to, my older sister, two years older than me, she gave me a hard time. I had to fight. Kids aren't, kids aren't fair, right? They don't think like that, especially if they no. don't have authority around them. They don't. They 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 don't think in a fair way, right? No, and my my brothers would uh, encourage this, of course. So I did feel. Um, I did. I guess I did feel there was a lot of unfairness. Um, so and I. I yeah. Is it is it to me as an external? external to your psyche looking in is it maybe not that surprising that you're interested in organizational psychology considering mm. that you were really reared in a organization i would say of 10 people or five you know without a solid leader as such you got the care and the support but you didn't have the leader um mm. and you you're like you said you're by your, your psyche is that you're quite analytical so potentially there was a lot of time there where you weren't treated fairly and there was not a lot you could do about that and now mm. you like to work in organizations and with employees and look at the situ look at the structure and look at why things should be done absolutely yeah and also so that no one the literature or the visual literature is is all about law or crime and fairness and mm. Mm. Sorry. sorry i'm telling you no no i think i think that's a good <laughs> i haven't i haven't really reflected on it in that way but that makes sense and it's it kind of joins up really with the work that I do today on um, purpose in life and, you know, whether a child can discern a purpose from a very young, young age or not. Well, the science shows that we can, or children can, except we don't necessarily know it. So for me, my purpose, I guess, was about pursuing 
fairness um, and not wanting to let anything that happened to me in the in an unfair way happened to other people so that thread I guess carrying it through into adult life and into my professional career yeah that makes sense um, I think the <clears throat> the turning point for me Mike when it com comes to um, why I decided to pursue organizational psychology and sort of I suppose the penny dropped was when I first moved when I left Scotland and moved to London in at the end of 2014, I worked for an organization uh, who specialized in um, matchmaking, high net worth uh, matchmaking organization uh, for uh, the rich, famous, wealthy, whatever way you want to position it. In dating? <clears throat> yeah. And I was uh, essentially a business psychologist helping co with coaching. Uh, coaching clients, matchmaking. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the program. <laughs> Sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. I don't think if you've ever seen the program, um, what's it called? Married at First Sight. Well, I've never, I can honestly, hand on heart, say I've never sat and watched Married at First Sight. But good. I would, but I I'm going to say good. <laughs> I can also say quite ashamedly that uh, the real. You've heard of it. The reels of Married at First Sight have drawn me in. So through the combination right. of short videos, I probably have accumulated watching a whole episode. But yeah, it's it's trash TV, right? <laughs> right. So you know the way the panels, the ex the ex experts sit down and they talk about the the matches and yep. who why they're a good match, why they're not a good match, etc. That was part of my job in this organization. <clears throat> How do you do that? So, 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 what's obviously we know you've got we know you've got a degree in, and a lot of education in behavioral, uh, in psychology, behavioral psychology, uh, organizational. But, but what when they say right, Emmett, with your knowledge, come and help us uh, align people that could, in theory, be married on at first sight. What do you look into? Like, how do you even begin to do that? So, they, this organization had a set structure as to how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, this was part of. I mean, I haven't even, you know, gotten into how crazy this got with this organization. So I, I won't spend too much time on it because it is quite a lengthy story. But the systems and the processes and the procedures that they used to me as someone who was who had studied psychology and looking in on this organization and being in it and seeing them operate the way that they did, I thought, you guys claim to be psychologists you claim to be helping people and matching them but none of this adds up <clears throat> there was i had 26 clients who had um who had serious issues with the service um and we were talking about 18,000 to 30,000 pounds a year for this service sorry just for my clarity and just i'm just following along for, for other people that are listening are you now are you talking about the program or the business were you still working on were you working on the program or were you just drawing parallels to that to the job that you were doing no i was i was working in that organization right okay yeah so um, that made the program married at first sight no sorry sorry, I'm right, just sorry I've, I've, I've confused the audience there so so you're working yeah, yeah, yeah. people pay to get professionally match made which draws parallels to 
uh, married at first sight, but you're not similar. Yes, yeah, you're nothing not. to do. Yeah, let's clarify. Absolutely, that's me. That's me. Nothing. Sorry, I, got, I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with married at first sight. Because I'm just um, saying, well, surely they on married at first sight, they're going to consciously match people they know aren't going to get on for television viewing, right? But yeah, we're talking about yeah. people paying money to be match made to. <laughs> Um, yes, in this organization. And, and how much did you say they're paying? But what's the range? Between yeah. 18 and 30,000, yeah, a year. And, and what do you kind of get for that? I mean, do you get like a they would, or well, you were You were to get eight matches. Um, and you were to be matched with like minded people um, who have similar net worth to you, Premium. similar lifestyle. Tinder, right? Exactly that. However, it wasn't. Okay. And that was where I started to think something's not right here. So I started to investigate uh, because I was getting 26 clients complaining, telling me this is this is rubbish. You, you guys aren't doing what you're meant to be doing. Sorry, so I, I've got it. I've got it. I'm, I'm thinking about the questions that people are going to have that listening to this. They're going to be interested <laughs> what, what kind of complaints this, do you get when somebody's paid 18 to 30 odd grand for eight? Uh, uh, what I remember. And look, I, I suppose I need to be mindful here that the clients yeah, course, were yeah. profoundly affected by this, right? Yeah. They were deeply psychologically affected by by that process not delivering what it was meant to. So respecting okay. yep. and being sensitive around that. But some of this the clients would turn up for lunch, meet their prospective uh, new partner. Yep. And they would end up paying for their own lunch because the person that they met had no money. Um, so what was happening was the organization, the people matching were were basically headhunting anyone who met some criteria. So it's only one person that's paying. So that you have one person paying, but then the match for that person wasn't another paying person. This could be anybody. Sometimes, yes. The majority, yeah. So just to speed up this this story, because there's a lot into it, I blew the whistle uh, on the process, the sales process because I thought this is this is wrong. It's broken. Clients are are, are not being... It's unfair, which is a... Which is... It's unfair, um, little did I realize that the, the CEO who I blew the whistle to was, you know, was well aware, and it was it was used as um as a personal bank account in many ways. The business, yeah. the business no longer exists. We ended up in a they they sued me twice. I defended myself successfully at the high court. I supported wow. another client. Um, and it took two and a half years. Uh, but when I decided to do my master's in uh, 2017, that's that was the driving force. I thought, never will I work for an organization as toxic as this. Never will I allow people to be subjected employees to be subjected to such toxicity and so i'm going to do something about this which is why i went and did the masters yeah okay um, so it's that it's that so, fair it's that fairness piece again though right it's doing the right mm -hmm. thing it's, it's having morals and, and and standing up for them and what what i find interesting about that story you just told is i think 
I think what happened there, you can probably draw parallels to on a um, spectrum, all organizations, right? So, so that's probably at the very high end of um, the, the motivation to make more money quickly being compromising the quality of service to a point where it's, there's no quality of service whatsoever right and and it has a negative impact as you said on when you do that when you when you throw fairness and process and mm. uh, due diligence out the window and you just focus on making money um when when you know it's not delivering a good service that's going to have a negative impact on the employees because they know they're not doing a good job they know they're not doing something right and as you also said in a situation like that it's going to have a really negative impact on the people as well because the customers because they're spending a lot of money on this service and being made to feel like well even when i spend this money mm. bad things still happen so this go on but look i think i, I tried my best to turn it around i presented a, a, a new way of, of doing things uh, a more um, robust sales process a more uh, fairer um, coaching process fairer contracts I presented something back to the organization and I was laughed at. And I, I mean, it was corrupt. The mind was corrupt. The CEO's mind was corrupt. The, the, the managing director's mind was corrupt because of money, because it was all about um, them and at the expense of hundreds of people. Uh, and I, no, I'm. <laughs> I was on pittance. I, you know, these people were worth millions. I didn't. It didn't matter to me. <clears throat> it was about the, the morality of the service and delivering what you say you're going to deliver. And yeah, I guess there's this. I I see this image in my mind or this process in my mind that often in in a business, regardless of what the business is, it is quicker to make more money if you do things with. with maybe not in the right way and when i say the right way you know there's there's a level of how much by the get how much to the rule should you stick but in that example there it's like let's just completely go again <laughs> should be doing but which is going to make it easier for us to make money in the short run but i also think that when you do that you you're you're severely limiting your shelf life right because yes although you're making quick money right now you're going to get found out you're going to go your customers aren't going to be happy if that can only just be sustained for so long they, it, it, I'd be lying if, if that whole that whole experience traumatized me. It still has an effect on me today. Mm. But I can, <laughs> I can look in on that, that that situation now, and I know that the corruption, the corruption in the mind, was um, all all grounded in fear, shame, anger. Um, because once you go down that road, it's very hard to turn around if you don't have the professional support and help. Uh, and I'm talking about the, the CEO. You, 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 you've been doing this for 10, 15 years. And you can't do a U-turn because you're so ingrained in your behavior around making all of this money. And I look at that now and I think I have compassion for the whatever was going on for, for that person mm. because to choose that way of doing business um you've got to be dealing you've you've got to some really deep-rooted um uh issues but this happens a lot right this happens in a lot of businesses um yeah. maybe not on as extreme a scale but but essentially a lot of the time you know i had some really dark times in the military because i had 
some senior leaders that were corrupt. They, you know, when, when I say corrupt, they weren't taking money. They weren't taking mm-hmm. funds out of, you know, out of the taxpayer's pocket and, and running away and spending on holidays. But they were consciously not looking after people, consciously going, doing things that only serve their own gain for their own promotion, their own recognition, and consciously making other people's lives very uncomfortable in that process. So mm-hmm. were they corrupt in regards to the example you've just given no but were they corrupt well i suppose how, how do we define corrupt in, in in my eyes it's somebody that um does things that aren't correct or or moral in order for their own gain and and i think mm-hmm. that happens a lot right i think we've and i'm sure you and i have both done things that we mm-hmm. could look at that way that have been corrupt in our own lifetime so why why do you think that happens so commonly in organizations why do you think there's a need for the kind of things that you do Look, in its simple terms, I think, you know, the way there's this huge drive at the moment around um, improving digital skills in organizations, improving, if there's a digital skills gap, a major issue here in the UK. Whilst that's true, I think there's a much bigger issue. And I think there's a psychological skills gap I think us humans are taught how to read, write, how, what to believe, what to say, how to behave, but we're not taught these really useful, simple psychological skills that can serve us um, really well in our life as we go through our life. So to answer your question, I think, why? Well, the first one is awareness. I think people <clears throat> lack the ability to be able to relate to their environment and be aware of how their behavior is impacting other people. If you have that one skill, the rest tend to follow the, the skills relating to what I'm talking about. And I think that's the, that's a very simple way of um, explaining why that, why this issue exists, because <clears throat> if you're not aware, then how can you possibly be able to, pivot or change your behavior so that you're not having a negative impact on people. But for that CEO, for example, that you, and I know it's an extreme example, but perhaps he was aware that what he was doing wasn't good for the clients and good for the people, yet he carried on. And I think with my experience in the military, you know, it ended up with me, it's not as extreme as your version, but I, I had to record somebody secretly uh, in a senior position to me, threatening to make my life difficult because I was leaving the military. And I knew they were going to do this. And I knew that oh, I'm sorry. It, well, it's, it happens, right? Yeah. So so I, I, I recorded it and I went through the official complaint process, which in the army is unheard of. Like you do not complain against a senior officer. And if you do, you know that your career is over. The only reason I had the um, ability to, to pursue this was because I was leaving anyway. So I was like, you know what? A bit like you, I'm going to do the right thing because I don't, I'm going to leave. Um, and I've got, and I'd rather stand by my morals then let this person get away with this behavior. So I went through the mm-hmm. process and it's this long drawn out process and you have somebody from a different unit come and work with you so that you're represented fairly, but it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a mock court, you know, it's, it's a, it's what they're saying. It's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a charade. So um, at the end of this three week process, they basically sat there and said, well, why we, we, we've listened to both sides and we've come to the conclusion that we believe this person over you because they're more senior than you. 
And I was like, brilliant. Okay. Well, then, and then I said, well, when everything I've told you, I've got on recording on my phone and you watch the faces drop <laughs> and they, 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 they didn't, they, they were dumbfounded that I'd shared this with them at the end. And, and it's because I knew that if I told them at the beginning, I wanted to see if they would, if they would mm. do the right thing. And I knew they wouldn't. Right. So, <clears throat> so, so at the end, I told them this thing and they asked me to leave the room. So we need to discuss what you just shared with us. And they basically said, right, we need to take this away, this information that you've shared and uh, think about what we're going to do. And what happened was uh, about three days later, I got um, uh, I got called into the CO's office, the most senior officer in this regiment. And, and I got a, a formal apology. I got asked not to repeat this to the other um, people in the unit. And then I got a written letter of apology, which I got asked not to share. And what I found really fascinating was that I never got asked to share the recording. <laughs> They never even listened to the recording and that's because they knew, okay. they knew. So, so this corruption is, is more common than we think. Everybody in that room knew that what I was saying was the truth, but it was easier to just pin it on me um, and just brush it into the carpet than actually address some poor behavior because it might create admin or bring a, bring mm. a bad person. So, so that's corruption, right? It's not, it's not embezzling funds, but it's corruption. Yeah. It's the, the authoritarian leadership. That's what it is. You know, so, so you said they're about having awareness, but what about mm. why, why do you think it happens even when people do have awareness? Like your CEO of that company knew that. What well, I don't. Here's what? the thing, though. I would say if you were aware at the level, at the human level, then your morality would kick in and be like, hang on a second. This isn't right. So you might be aware surface level, right? Where it's like, I'm aware that, you know, this isn't the truth. I'm aware that what we're doing isn't necessarily the right thing, but I'm talking about aware of the, the, the human impact and being being connected emotionally to what that really means for you and for other people. So really, you're, when you're saying aware, you're actually, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you're actually leaning into having a level of connection to your spiritual being to being a good to, to being connected to the fact that if you're a good human and do good things your life will be better and that if you're disconnected absolutely that's the level of awareness we're talking about not surface level i'm aware that i ignored my um flatmate when i ran past her yesterday <laughs> because <clears throat> i needed to get in and have a shower and make, make some dinner quite quickly because i was you know focused in a zone but i also had this deeper level of awareness that i want to apologize and say you know i didn't that wasn't because it was being because you have a level of connection to your to your spiritual being or your, <laughs> to being a decent human being but that's a moral that's that's a that's a spiritual mm-hmm. thing right because I, I i learned this so i i um after the army i i went and lived in nepal and thailand and traveled and um i felt quite unhappy and I was living in Australia, so I travelled all around Southeast Asia and Australia. And one day I was walking through a train station in Perth, thinking to myself, um, I live in a beautiful city, I've got no stresses, I'm out of the army, I've got money in the bank, I'm so, you know, I've got, I've got, I'm a healthy guy, I've, I've, had a, I've landed in another easy job, you know, so life, life's very good to me. And um, I remember thinking, but I still feel uh, a sense of something missing. Like, And I remember just having this internal dialogue that am I just a bit miserable am i just never going to be happy with, with with life no matter what it how good it, it can be to me and i saw a book in a in a shop window loads of this book because it's being promoted you know and you have like the same book 
50 times. And it was the art of happiness with the face of the Dalai Lama on the front. And I thought to myself, whilst having this internal dialogue about, am I just destined to be miserable and unhappy? There's a book with this spiritual looking guy looking at me um, called The Art of Happiness. I thought perhaps I should read this book. And um, I read that book in one day. I just couldn't put it down. And essentially what it taught me is what you're talking about here. And it's that it, it, it teaches you the basics of living a spiritual life and not in a woo-woo kind of way as we might see it in the West when we think about Buddhists and all that, but in a very practical, logical way. And, and he's, he's, he's actually written it with a, with a psychologist called How, um, Harold Cutler, I think. It doesn't matter. And it, he literally explains step by step, look, if you, if you live a hedonistic lifestyle, which the West teaches us, so just go out, work hard, get paid, buy all these nice things, treat yourself, chase, chase, chase your sexual partners, whatever it is you want to do, you're, gonna, you're never going to feel happy because this is all temporary happiness. Money, for example, like you talked about with the CEO or career, if you just chase those things, you won't feel happy. You will feel happy when you find out what you're passionate about, when you help people, when you contribute to others, when you feel connected to people. And he also talks about these psychological skills, such as not holding on to a grudge because that only makes you unhappy, not the other person, and being able to be aware of what's going on in your mind and, and, and all of this kind of stuff. And I remember reading this book and thinking, oh, my God, why is this not taught in school? <laughs> we're taught maths, we're taught English, you know, all these things that you just talked about, but we're not taught <laughs> the basic skills, psychological skills that lead to us being happy people. And then ironically, the stuff that leads to us being happy people leads to us being good people that contribute to the world. And I think this is one of the key things that's missing. Absolutely. Missing yeah. So so when we are told day in and day out, I see it in uh, news articles online, media social media this skills gap around digital skills and the issues around why 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 are people afraid of it why why can't people you know close that gap i'm like well it's obvious because we're not psychologically equipped to make that leap just yet around closing this, this digital skills gap so let's let's maybe start you know closing the psychological skills gap and helping people to um discern those skills and cultivate them and embed them so, instead of so what you're saying is that constantly focusing on the hard skills as such is mm -hmm. a distraction from the fact that we're just as a society and as a nation not really trained in the psychological skills that would lead to us having the mindset we need to embrace those new skills so we're kind of <laughs> absolutely you've said it better than i could yeah we're treating the symptoms not the not the root cause Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that seems to be the way we do things in the field of psychology i mean we don't need more research we we don't we don't need more studies we have it all right but it takes about 17 on average 17 years for research to leave the lab to get into mainstream society and only five percent of it is ever taken up anyway successive governments all over the world are consulted and told this is what we need to do. And then the scientists and psychologists, social sciences, whatever, are told, well, why don't you figure out how we do it and then come back to us? And there's just this, this complete lack of implementation science around this stuff. And that's why the UK, I mean, as far as um, uh, our well-being goes, we're a sick nation. Um, Ireland's the same. This is where I come from. We have a lot of work to do and i'll actually share with you i was out on uh, saturday night with some friends i don't drink and it's the first time that i've been out 
Now, this isn't me being judgmental at all. This is me observing and being acutely aware, this deep awareness that I'm talking about, that people are, it feels like we're being, we, we are not given the best opportunities to be able to respond to our life in, in an effective way. And being out on Saturday night in central, central London, seeing people be seeing a lot of lost people was quite difficult and very sad because I'm like, this awareness is missing. And these people will turn up to organizations today and go through the motions and experience um, lack of support, lack of, you know, um, managerial support, lack of whatever. Um, and they'll repeat the cycle again. Like I said, it sounds a bit judgmental, but oh, I, don't, I, don't it's think a it sounds, I don't think it sounds judgmental. I think it sounds like you're analytical, like you said at the very beginning of the call mm -hmm. and you're in a process. Um, I, I often feel a bit, what's the right word? I often feel a bit smug because I spent three years almost traveling after the military. And basically I just, I, I after I got into reading the Dalai Lama, I, I quit drinking, um, started volunteering, li living a better life, becoming a better human being. Ironically, for selfish reasons, because I realized that being a good person was going to help me be happier, right? So I was being sensibly mm -hmm. selfish. And I read loads and loads of Buddhism, old Buddhist books, new Buddhist books, the the some of the most ancient kind of Sanskrit um, and Pali canon stuff not in sanskrit i'm not that intelligent at all uh in, in tra translated into english and um what are you saying then about you know we, we don't need more studies <laughs> i found that really fascinating because i read a lot of studies i read a lot of science i read a lot of books and because i've mm. had that three-year phase of just geeking out on buddhism and some other spiritualities everything i read now in science <laughs> uh and the, the latest study is like yeah we already know that from two and a half thousand years ago like the, the buddha was was sharing this information <laughs> and people Look, had pain issues and people were drinking and gambling because they weren't connected to anything higher than themselves and they didn't have the skills yeah. to, to, to get through their own issues so they so they um mask it with or or or, or try and sedate it with alcohol and drugs and sex and entertainment and whatever else it is if you're enjoying this episode between Emmett and myself, please be sure to check into the second half of the conversation, which will be released in the next week or so on the channel. We don't we don't know how to be with ourselves and just ourselves. Mm. That's that's the crux of it. We are uncomfortable literally in our own skin and we will do anything and everything to avoid to distract to disconnect I, and we I, don't know it i can attest to the power of that so before i went traveling when i was in the army i every friday if you're lucky in the army and you're not in afghanistan or anywhere else you you have an early finish on a friday you finish at 12 o'clock and i remember the whole time i was in the military pretty much every friday would come along 12 o'clock and i was uncomfortable in my own company so i would rush to get home and go out on the go on the get, go on the pop with my friends or i'd go and get wine and drink with my friends in the army but but i couldn't bear the thought it was that this this um an anxiety level rising and me being in a rush to go and be somewhere and do something you know the, the, we make a joke now we say fomo but it was like actually i just didn't like being on my own 
And then when I went to clubs and bars, I didn't really feel comfortable there. So I get very drunk and then I get in trouble. And then when I went traveling and studying Buddhism, in fact, it was definitely reading that book. I keep pointing it just behind me on the shelf. Um, I read that book, The Art of Happiness, and something changed me. And even the process of reading that book, I did in a solitary setting and I was quite comfortable because I was learning this stuff. And then I went and lived on monasteries and, and did lots of other things. And basically from that moment, I learned to be comfortable on my own. Whereas now I'm probably a hermit, right? <laughs> I've probably gone too far the other way. But before that, I didn't have that skill. And, and having that skill helped me stop drinking, helped me save money, helped me start businesses, mm. helped me get into the best shape of my life, even I'm older than I used to be. Um, so yeah, I think that's such a powerful thing. And I think that you've hit on there that people don't aren't comfortable being in their own company. And when you're not comfortable being in your own company, that leads to alcohol, drugs, mobile phones, entertainment, all the things which mm. make money, which is a which is obviously a whole separate conversation, right? Well, I, I mean, that's a good sort of segue into what I was wanting to kind of discuss anyway, is, is our purpose. Our purpose is being degraded day in and day out because we are constantly trading it for, trading our time, effort, attention and money for products and services that claim to um increase our happiness give us more time and a lot of these things are wrapped up in uh, what, what you're just talking about the behaviors of going out drinking meeting meeting in clubs um, mobile phones social media and i, I think, think that is same thing is draining draining our sense of purpose and meaning that the everyday meet uh, mundane seemingly insignificant activities that we we give up such as uh ex go, literally just how about just going out for a run rather than having to put on some wearables and bring your phone with you and mm -hmm. you know you're 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 trading your attention to apps and wearables i don't know if you're into wearables but you're trading your attention for those kind of things you're trading um convenience foods um there's a, there's a particular brand that that sells a, a, a meal in a bottle. It says have that instead of cooking your own food. Like the the latent effect of these things on our psychology is now being realised. I mean, our purpose has been being great, being degraded for over the last fifty years because of products and services. And I suppose these... the real I suppose the real challenge of that is because my part of my brain's going, well, you know, some things are good for convenience, right? Because it means we can do things that are more aligned. We can spend more time on the things that we're purposeful about. But I think the problem is is that when you get so obsessed with just making money to buy those things so that you can have more time, you just get stuck in this vicious loop of you need the money to buy the things to to make the money to buy the things. And it's like, but the purpose thing isn't there. So it's this never ending never fulfilling soul devoid function right a cycle but you hit you mentioned so that you could focus you could focus your time on more purpose that's fine if you're doing it but if you're sat there exactly <laughs> if it's using your time. my time so that i can do more pointless stuff then that's a that's mm -hmm. being whereas if it's you know i do yeah, look at I a like lot this, of yeah. successful entrepreneurs for example and they will be like we don't cook we, we buy food we, we have it cooked for us so we can do more of, of what we're good at and i think what we're what we're destined for i think i i have two i sit on two sides of the fence here because i sit on the kind of spiritual um buddhist be in the present moment side which is actually you should find joy in cleaning your windows you should find joy in pre preparing the meal and life is right now so i think there's an element of that 
But then I think there's also an element of if you find your passion, things that you're genuinely passionate about, you're going to want to pursue them and you're going to get excited about the future. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's fine. And for me, that's actually been a bit of a challenge, right? Finding the balance between those two things, mm. between having goals and things that you're excited for and a vision that you want to move towards in a better world, better place, better people, better family, whatever it might be, better you. And also being happy in the now. And I think finding the balance between the two is its own spiritual question and um, uh, its own challenge, right? Just pause on that. I'm going to plug this in. Mike, sorry. We're losing So whilst you're plugging that in, Emmett, um, yep. we've gone quite a high level spiritual there. And I think I think you have to, right? I think if you're if you I think it shows that you've got a good level of insight into this because if you skip that stuff, um you you kind of gloss over the main the the main issue, right? Mm. But, but I think what I'd like to try and do now is bring it back down to Earth a little bit. <laughs> so we'll move yep. away from those high-level spiritual concepts and come more towards, okay, I'm a manager, I'm a business owner, I'm a business leader, I'm responsible for people. Um, how can I do that better? How can I um, function better as an individual? How can I create a culture where... Um, people thrive and generally speaking the people that will listen to and watch this are people that do care about their people and that, and often you'll find that that is part of their struggle right they care so much about their people and i, I know this because mm. i've got the t-shirt um they care so much about their people then they worry about any conflict going on so then they try and not not have any of that and they worry about putting stress on the people so they try to not have any of that but then they obviously have mm. to meet the demands of the business as well so i think generally speaking the people here would have listened to those stories of interest like about me with the military you with the ceo but i think they'll be thinking well that's not me because the whole reason i listen to this podcast is because i care about people in fact what they will resonate with is how frustrated they get when they when they encounter people like that but still yeah. let's say that so these people are good people um they do care about people like you and i it's still not easy right to create um an environment where we get results for the business we get results for the customers and the and, our, and we create a new culture that the employees and um everybody loves why do you think that yeah. is and, and what do you think are some of the key things that you'd need to focus on so you, you are connected to your spirit in regards to you care about people what do you think are going to be the next kind of challenges that people face i think <clears throat> i think a lot of managers and i know this because i was one um will fear taking risks with their people Yep, especially emotional risks, risks that involve the feelings, the things that uh, I call um, private internal events. So the pies of the human. So it's like, what stands in the way of me being an effective manager? If I was to sit and go through my plan, for the next three months with my people. And in that plan, it requires me to take some risks emotionally to self-disclose about conflict, self-disclose about, you know, what's showing up for me and getting in the way of me doing a good job. If I'm looking at that plan and and I I say to myself, do you know what? Um, yeah, I'm gonna do this and I'll do it tomorrow. I'm going to speak to the team about this tomorrow. And then it comes to tomorrow and then it's like, I 
schedule it for next week. Right, right now, there's you've got all this other these meetings going on. This piece of work to do. <laughs> it's avoidance, essentially. I, mean, I I think there's two things that I'm picking out from there. So, I, I I would draw two different things from what you just said. So, I would say one is decision making. Um, I think that's one challenge that all leaders and managers face: of making decisions that bring with them challenge and risk. And then which mm. which any good decision does work. And then the second piece is the avoidance of or fear of conflict. And these are so I've got some notes written down before we jumped on today. I thought, you know, we're gonna get we're gonna go down some rabbit holes, but what's some things I definitely want to talk to Emmett about? And one was conflict, because this is a common I, I know I work I do workshops with so many different leaders across so many different businesses, and this fear of conflict is such a common issue. And it's something I have as well. You know, it's it, I think it's a human thing, right? So maybe some people are, you know, a bit more, bit more kind of hardy to it. But I think by and large, most people, given the opportunity, will avoid conflict because it's not nice, right? But it's essential, right? It's essential for growth. I like Jordan Peterson talks a lot about you've got to be really clear on your values and then be willing to to, to have the conflict that you're going to need to have. Yep. To um, so what I mean, what what would you start with? I've maybe you start with the decision making. Decision making, yeah. Is- Right. I mean, the the thing about these decision making and conflict is, it's like a reticulating model, right? The chicken and the egg, which comes first, you know. If I have a decision to make, I might be in conflict with myself because I will, I, I fear judgment. Yep. Um. So in order for me to 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 handle that, um, this is the work that I do with with ACT. It's to get is to explore expose the leaders which is what we do we expose leaders to um decision making um examples and we also expose them to the conflict it's almost like a role play so in in uh, psychotherapeutic um model we exposure therapy is a big thing in act um exposing people to these scenarios reduces the distress and as a, an example, or was that yeah? Like- so, so if I want you to, yeah, it's a really good. Ah, I love this experiential stuff. So I want you to think of a time, Mike, that um, you were, you experienced a really high, highly stressful conflict situation with a person that was in the last week, the last month. Not sure. Um, but really want you to recall what that was like for you. I uh, really want you to think the thoughts that you were thinking. Get into your body and notice where all of the emotions around that conflict are showing up. I want you to really marinate in it. And I want you to marinate in the thoughts to do with um, what was going on in that situation, the dialogue, the conversation to really get involved in it. Okay, I want you to really experience those feelings. Is this happening for you? Can you do that? Yep. Yeah. Do you notice anything in your body just now? What's showing up? Uh, I, I have an increased awareness around my heart area. So okay, a slight yeah. increase in, in in speed of heart rate, but really a kind of general okay anxiety feeling. Right. So I'm exposing you to the to that personal conflict, right? And and as a result, you're here now with me. We're working together. You're safe. You're secure. 
and um, but we're just getting into it marinating ourselves in and getting really used to what that feels like what it feels like to have conflict the heart's racing you know your your, your mouth might be dry your all your thoughts are thrown up yep and now what we're going to do is i want you to think of a time that you've had a really um positive exchange with somebody something that was very um that left you feeling excited left you feeling like you've achieved something that the conversation that you had with both whoever it was that you had this positive experience with what that what was that like what were the emotions like get caught up in the thoughts to do with that can you bring yourself to that particular um environment can you see yourself there enjoying what that was like yeah feeling what that's like and where in the body is that what's what's happening do you notice generally a, a feeling of lightness so a good kind of positive thing i feel lighter as a, as a human all right and now i'm going to bring us right back to the conflict and to bring you back to that situation yeah and what i do then is expose you to that again and we'll do that um four times okay back and forth yep and what happens, what tends to happen, what the, the research shows and the science shows is that the, the, the a lot of the, the feelings associated with conflict and the feelings associated with joy and happiness and excitement, they're the same feelings. It's just that we, we relate to them in a very different way, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes if you're very excited, your heart rate will increase. Yeah. But sometimes if you're anxious, your heart rate will increase. Yeah, and I did feel both in the heart area, actually. Um, mm. I said lightness, but it was all around here. Like it kind of still felt that slight increase in my heart rate still felt like it was there. Um, but it... So I call this river dipping, right? River dipping from uh, conflict to um, excitement. And it's it's exposing you to what that's like. And then what we would do is we would make a plan. It's like, okay, now that you've experienced what the conflict is like, you know, can we sit and make make a plan as to around how you're going to make decisions going forward and what's likely to show up and get in the way uh, relating to that those decisions? And if conflict still shows up, we'll sort of work on, on the emotional impact of that. Um, sometimes we do a physicalizing exercise where I would take it out and we would give it a shape, a size, a texture. Thanks. The dipping, the, the river dipping exercise, that, <clears throat> the emphasis of that or the focus of that is to help a person recognize, be, be aware of how they feel physically when, when conflict arises so that they can actually have a level of awareness about that as opposed to just reacting to it. And also mm -hmm. drawing parallels between the physical sensations of the conflict and the physical sensations of the excitement to realize that it's not bad. That, that that sensation isn't isn't inherently bad it's just a, it's absolutely responding and we don't have to take that as a surface level sign to avoid yes. this. so it's like teaching you to lean into it I, I guess essentially yes i mean we we don't get to choose this is an act saying but we don't get to choose uh, what emotions show up what thoughts show up but we do get to choose how to respond and that's the beauty of of, of act acceptance and movement therapy or training is that you can choose how you respond to the conflict internally so you can manage it outside in in the workplace environment yeah you can you know managers or to trained managers to do this with with um a conflicting team 
Um, but ultimately, as you just to go back to what you said, conflict in and of itself, uh, the, the data shows that it's not um, it's not bad for us. It doesn't cause us harm. It's conflict handled poorly and related to in a in a negative way. That's that's what causes harm. And I think there's such a challenge for managers and leaders in today's day and age, and be, and everybody, in fact, because of you know, if you go on social media and you you look at many things that are going on and where the popularity is around certain messages, the, the general message that is, I think we are having a bit of a backlash against this now, which is a good thing, but the general message that's portrayed in social media is conflict is bad. And if you disagree with somebody or say something that might offend somebody, then your career or life could be over because you're going to get cancelled and people are going to gang up on you on Twitter, right? And I think that's creating a terrible atmosphere because what it's doing is it's 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 killing debate. It's killing people being open and honest and it's leading to people feeling they just have to be silent or they have to agree with general consensus otherwise they're going to upset people and i think the, mm. the wider ramifications of that are huge right the, a team can't function without conflict something that i say to a lot of teams is uh, and managers is do you have any conflict in your team and, and, and a lot of them will say no and i'll be like that's a bad thing if it, it means one of two things it means you're all perfectly aligned and nobody disagrees with anything anybody else says which is very, very, very unlikely. Or it means you and your team are fearful of conflict, so you're not being open with each other about what your thoughts are and what you're thinking. But I also resonate that it's just so difficult because mm. as a manager or leader, you've got the mental health concerns of today. You've got the 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 kind of wokeism and PCism, which can mean that if you, you're fearful of saying anything because you might mm. be, be put on the front page of the news because you said something in jest that came out as being, you know, offensive to somebody 70 years ago and, and you just re-brought it up so I'm, I'm being facetious but um no I, I, I completely understand where you come from I, I see it too I think I do think that the lack of emphasis on individual is what's creating this like individually we we have a personal responsibility that when we go to work to show up as the best person that we possibly can the organization, the leaders, the managers have a responsibility to increase that, to support me, to make me the best possible um, employee as I, as I can be for, for them and to make my experience um, in that organization a positive one. But it begins with the self. If I'm turning up to work to try and catch my manager out or catch my, my team members out or to be difficult because I don't know how to relate to my um private internal events in an effective and functional way so that i can be a decent human being then it's going to be very difficult for a manager to manage me right so social media in the external world outside of the organization social media what you read what you see who you, you know what you believe all of these things if you hold them really tightly they will they won't benefit you um, when you're working in organizations if you're wanting to do if your aim is to try and um, harm other people you know with your opinions and your beliefs that's not healthy but if you can hold your your beliefs and your values and your your opinions lightly and, and be able to be fl flexible um then you'll have a, a much more effective time uh 
have affected in positive time in the workplace. So what you're saying is, is that, and correct me if I'm wrong. So what you're saying is that a manager or leader is going to find that they're going to be able to embrace conflict much easier if they work on themselves and figure out how to be more flexible and open in their own thoughts and opinions. 100%. So if you're fearful of of conflict, that could be a sign that you are um, too stuck in your own ways, too, too, too stuck in your own opinions and and not fluid enough in the way that you listen to people. So, so let's say that I'm listening to that and I, and I say, yeah, that's me. Actually, I recognize that I'm very stuck in my opinions and, and that leads to me um being fearful of conflict what would you say is a good step to take forward to start making progress on that well it it's it's not something that you can learn quite quickly mm-hmm. because they are your opinions they are your beliefs they do make up your identity but i would begin i mean using the the act model um this is this is about flexibility it's like there are you're made up of several parts as as a, as a manager as a leader or as a human yeah your opinions and your beliefs if you think of the russian doll sort of yeah um, china doll pops pops yeah russian china your opinions and your beliefs and and who you are outside of the workplace um, all your fears, your shame, your anger, everything, your 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 personal context is one part of you. Mm-hmm. But there's, and that's maybe the rigid part. But there's also these um, open, caring, aware, and connected part of you that, if nurtured and if you're willing to go into it, that you can focus on this part to help you handle the other part in a more effective way. And the more flexible we are, the more we can, um, we hold those beliefs and that part of us likely, the, yeah. the better it is that you'll likely be able to overcome conflict and not allow it to be a barrier for improving your team. Such a such an interesting insight, right? So, so really, um, we're kind of looking at this and going that, you know, if you want to go into a people leadership role, and often people don't want to, they just end up there because they're good at what they do. Um, you're going to have to learn potentially this new skill unless you already have it, but I would suggest most people don't um, of um, emotional intelligence, of being psychologically aware, of being open, of being aware of what your thoughts and opinions are. And I think this is a problem, right? I think that before you get to a leadership role, before you're in a management or leadership role, um, you can actually be very effective by being quite stuck in your own opinions and and not having to be open because it makes you good at focusing on what you do. It serves you well. Um, you don't have to get a team to be aligned to your thoughts and ideas, so it doesn't really matter. And then you jump into this management and leadership role, and all of a sudden, you're like, no, now you've got to get a team to buy into this idea, and now you've got to get people to like and respect you and, and want to work hard for you. Um, and that requires a new skill set, which is what we're talking about here. And, and it's not just not just a given right, it's something we have to learn. I, and I can see that being a really valuable um 
uh, not course as such, but learning module for, for, for new managers. Mm -hmm. right? so let's learn about being more psychologically open because you are going to get, have conflict in your role. You're going to have to make decisions, which when people are going to find difficult, you're going to have to have people disagree with you. You're going to have to upset people to be an effective manager because the other option, and this is where I see most managers fall into, if I'm honest, and I think the, the modern political environment is contributing to this. What most of us fall into is being passive uh, or pacifist. So we, we, we're we scared of the conflict. We worry about saying the wrong thing and getting you know told off or offending somebody. We're, we're, we're worried about um, conflict in general. So what we do is we just kind of don't make decisions, just kind of go with the flow, which what does that lead to in the long run? It leads to a team not being very fulfilled, team being overwhelmed because you say yes to team. Mm. Um, you don't have clear defined working practices. So other departments send too much work to you and you don't say no because you're scared of conflict. And it's just this no, down, could... short term, short term comfort. I'll avoid the, the conflict, which leads to loads of long term pain, which is on um, my team aren't listening to me. Mm. I'm stressed and overwhelmed. We've got too much work. People don't respect me. Yada, yada, yada. Well, the, the, this and this goes with this. I am a manager. That's my title. Right. So this is my job. Mm -hmm. And you become the manager. But ultimately, the manager is just, it's a role. But I work as a manager. I'm not the manager. Mm -hmm. right? I, I, so just to sort of explain what I mean by this. When we when we cling tightly to this conceptualized self of being a manager, yep. it increases our expectations around um, how we should be and how we need to be right, around performance and what um, deliver, deliverables. But with flexibility, this flexible approach, it's I work as a manager and these are my responsibilities. It gives you this kind of distance from being caught up in the content of being I am manager rather than I work as a manager, right? So you get this distance, you have this flexible approach to um, be doing the work that you're you're clearly very good at or that you're passionate about, but you're not caught up in the identity of being a manager because the identity can hold you back from being flexible and being human and it, it it sort of you lose the other parts of yourself when you cling tightly to this conceptualized uh, identity of, of a manager hmm makes sense yeah it does make sense i'm just thinking about if i if i agree <laughs> uh I so it's like anything. If parents, for I'll example. give you an, ex an example out, outside of the manager. Yeah. If I say I'm not very good at that, what are you not very good at, Bennett? I'm not very good at canoeing. I'm not very good at scuba diving. I am not very good. Apply that same thinking to I am man. I am a manager. Mm. I've identified. I've bought into the. But you um, could say I am a manager and be aware that you're other things as well. So you could say, I am, I am a parent, right? It's not my only, I'm not. Right, got, that's the parent, point, right? Yeah. So, but if you if you are caught up in the identity of being a manager and needing to deliver and, and have these high expectations and I'm not allowed to fail and I don't want anyone to judge me, I need to be great at this, it gets in the way of you. But is, being... the, issue, is the issue identifying as a manager or the way you define manager? 
Well, how do we define manager? I mean, who well, defines some, some, some people say, so, say, so for example, some people will define themselves as parents and be very proud of that. Some people will define themselves as business owners and be very proud of that. If you is, now, if you define yourself as a business owner and then bring on the internal definition that a business owner is somebody that works seven days a week, doesn't spend time with their family um, and is only focused on making money, then that can certainly have some negative connotations. I could say to myself, I identify, I wouldn't say, I'd say I'm a manager, right? And I could see that as a, I get to lead people, I get to develop people, I get to achieve results for our customers, for our, I get to develop my team. Then, then, then me identifying as a manager brings positive connotations. But as you rightly said, if I say I am a manager, which means I have no weaknesses, I can't show any flaws, I have to work harder than everybody else and um, all of that stuff, then that can quickly become a negative. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree with you. And I, I certainly agree with what you're saying. I maybe just just to disagree with the way it's framed, but I don't think it, I think I think we're arguing about the same thing, right? You still with me? I lost you. No, completely. Oh, that's exactly it. Frozen, but carry on. I can say, oh, you're back. You're back. Yeah, carry on. No, that's you're you're absolutely right. Um, we are talking about the same thing. It's in the context of of conflict and decision making and 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 working in the organization as a manager. Sometimes, yeah managers cling tightly to that that identity and it's to the detriment because they forget about who they are i agree i think i think generally speaking the the widely accepted but unwritten definition of what a manager is isn't positive i would say it's mm. a stressful job where you're stuck in the middle you've got to tell people what to do and they um and, and get business results and and all of that and i don't i think i thought i I thought we were moving away from the manager thing. I've read so many articles from those big uh, corporate um, consulting firms talking about manager is an obsolete term. We should be using coaches. We should be. Well, you know. I, I agree, but the, but but the, the thing is, is what the big corporates write and what actually happens in the world are two different things, right? And and we've been using the term manager for a couple of hundred years or hundred years at least, and and we will mm. continue to use it just because. Deloitte wrote we should be coaches now doesn't mean everyone's going to start <laughs> saying that right it, it, how long ago did Turkey say we should start referring to them as Turkeya and everybody it's just stuck in our side yeah. so you I think you're right and I you know I have this same context with happiness right so I I before I traveled and discovered Buddhism I thought to be happy meant to have a good time to feel good to to to, to, to experience pleasure and, and joy whether that's in the short term or the long term after I discovered Buddhism and spirituality I actually realized that my definition of the word happiness was wrong. And that was creating a lot of issues in my life. And I think, I do think that the meaning of life is to be happy, but I don't think that happiness is just feeling good all the time. I think happiness is living with purpose, helping other people, feeling a sense of fulfillment yeah. and still feeling that sense of fulfillment, even when you're down, you're tired, you're negative, mm. you know, that, that stays there. And that's, that's, I really like to caveat because, because our company is called better happy. Right. So when I go in, I'm yeah. like, not just talking about making everybody smile all the time and bringing ice cream. No, out. yeah. We're talking about a deep sense of fulfillment that people get from growing as individuals, from learning how to make difficult decisions, from realizing that you can have conflict and it's not the end of the world, right? Because I actually think conflict is essential for happiness. And this is, again, getting spiritual on you. <laughs> well, if you don't, I mean, look, the, the, the if you've had a an argument with your a loved one or or myself if you don't talk about it you if you it, it it'll just grow and grow and in within that is resentment 
Yeah, and this is what happens in teams, right? If you if you if if you don't figure out how to nurture conflict, um, mm. and this is another question I had for you, but but I'll, but come back to that at the end of this. If you don't figure out how to nurture conflict, you will create resentment because it's either talked about or it's held within, and then it creates this toxic toxicity in this in this bitchy culture. And the reality is, and this is something I said to you at the beginning, most teams and businesses have a culture where there's lots of resentment and it's not because it's anybody sat there going, Oh, how can we make this miserable for people? It's because it's human beings that are scared of conflict and they're avoiding it. And it's leading to these ramifications down the line. So it's like, it makes sense, right? We're we're fearful of conflict. Conflict historically led to fighting and and injury and death. But in the modern world, it's like, it's, it's in a new context, but we've still got these evolutionary brains. Um, Do you think you get, What's your thoughts on conflict then about getting better at it with exposure to it and with practice? What's my thoughts? How do you mean in particular? So let's say you've got somebody that's sat there and they're like, you know, they've listened to this and they're like, yeah, but I really do hate conflict. Just the thought of having, mm. a, just the thought of having a difficult conversation with somebody start, makes me start to shake and get, get anxious. Mm. Um, and they might be telling themselves a narrative that that's just me, right? I'm particularly sensitive to conflict and it's always going to be that way. Do you think that that person with practice, just like learning an instrument, will get to a point where they can actually be quite good with conflict? Absolutely. I, I 100% believe that. And I know that because... Oh, joys of... You are willing to go into the conflict with and the tools and skills. I lost you at. I know that because, and then I lost you. Also, your, your internet fell. Yeah, I, I, I know that it. You can, you can improve, and you can, in many ways, um, move towards conflict. Um, quite, it can you know it can be part of your 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 daily activities, in the workplace, um because I've worked with people who have, and I've done it on myself. Yeah, I think when you're willing to go into the conflict with, and you have the skills and the tools to do so, it, it makes you a more effective human. Um, I've made, I've, I've strengthened relationships because of it. Um, mm-hmm. Managers and leaders I've worked at, worked with have done the same uh, family. It's fascinating. it's fascinating isn't it the people that are the most people focused that care the most are the ones that are probably going to be the most fearful of conflict generally mm. which is going to lead to them having not the impact that they want to have and, and having the wrong culture and atmosphere which is going to lead to them suffering and i think this is where so much unhappiness in the workplace comes from i think you've got passionate people focused business owners and, and business leaders that want it to be amazing they want it to be amazing for their customers they want it to be amazing for their employees but their fear of conflict leads to them just letting things slide, not being aligned to their values, mm. not not moving things the way they want it to move. And then before they know it, they kind of are in this horrible environment that they didn't mean to create. It's just been created by this fear of of conflict. And I guess mm. I guess you've got to like almost have a have a star chart on the board and like say, right, you got to you got to engage in conflict ten times this week, and then give yourself a star every time. <laughs> things like things like that to to nurture yourself towards it but also seeing on a logical level that the avoidance of it is not going to lead to you helping people yeah i i I think i i lost you a bit there mike um i think are we back yeah you're back okay 
So the star chart you were saying they should yeah, have. I was saying that perhaps, you know, if you're, if you are one of those people, because I think this is a lot of people and I would, re I resonate with this message now. And I did five years ago, especially, you know, if you're one of these people that's fearful of conflict, but you, but you're a leader, you're a people leader, a business owner, whatever it might be. Um, you've got to encourage yourself to start building this skill because for you to actually care for people the most and create the outcomes you want to create, you have to get comfortable with conflict. No, it's like learning to drive. You've got to do it, right? One of the, the processes that I identify in, in managers and leaders and people that I work with who, who do not like conflict, and I recognize this in myself as well, is that when we don't do the action around resolving conflict or approaching conflict, we tend to beat ourselves up. Right. There's a the psychological process of like you, you can't but you're not doing this again. My my top tip for that would be to um acknowledge that you're suffering because you don't like conflict and respond with kindness, which is essentially self-compassion. Um it's to say, Do you know what? There must be something so important to me here that would create this uh this emotion that that's trying to prevent me from resolving this. And at the opposite end of 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 the conflict is the re, is the resolution, right? People care. People who don't care wouldn't feel this. Mm. It's the you care. You know, you hurt where you care the most. This this stuff because you don't want to do it. It's important. And choosing the you you know choosing courage as a value um, and taking expressing it in quality. Uh, actions to do with resolving conflict or having the the, the conversation it's a, a very useful value to kind of um cultivate um focus on yeah so i guess there's the you know and it's and it's also reframing it in your mind as being essential right so you, you know you the fact that you're beating yourself up about this shows you that you care so give yourself a break and then the next part is you've got to convince the rational part of your mind that tries to talk you out of the conflict because it says it's bad, it's not being comfortable, you can do it next week. You've got to convince that part of your mind that... It's like, nah, that, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You've got to... You've got to um, yeah. That, no, this isn't right for, for me to get the results that I want. For me to be a fantastic manager, for me to be a fantastic leader, for me to create a great culture for my team, for me to get incredible results for our customers, conflict is an essential part of the step and I've got to get more comfortable with that and then, and... And I know that you're, I know this part of me, whatever it is, is going to try and talk me out of it, but I'm not going to let you do it. I think that the, your your listeners might be interested to know, you know, we've talked about the what, what's going on for people and what's getting in the way. It's it's the how to, you know, if they wanted to leave uh, after they listen to your, your, your this talk um, and make a plan to resolve conflict, you know, they could sit down and ask themselves two very important questions. Um, who's important to me and what's important to me about resolving this conflict? And they could they could literally take that very uh, simple template and go to the team and ask them the exact same question, the exact same two questions to get the conversation going around whatever the situation is. Um, it's a very simple way of disclosing you know who's important to me here around this conflict and what what's important to me around this conflict and take it from there and see what happens i don't believe in sort of formulaic approaches to having to like set things up and needing to create a um, an initiative so to speak you know you can resolve these things quite quickly 
and it signals to the to the group the team to whoever that this person is willing at risk to resolve this and it kind of taps into that emotional aspect of it as well um that's just a, a very simple tip or, or pointer i would say Cool. I think we could talk about this for hours, but very quickly, <laughs> we, are, we are at our 90 minute point. And I, and I know that this is a, um, I know it's a really important topic for people. And I think I, I, I don't want to put a statistic on it because it's going to be made up, but I think a significant amount of hardship and lack of growth in businesses would be solved if we just trained everybody in a leadership management position to have a healthy relationship with conflict, I think it's a huge mm. thing. And like I said, I think politically we're, we're pushing it the other way, which is creating new challenges for, for leaders and managers, but we need a, we need a movement, right? We need a movement that, that, that reframes conflict as being a good thing as an essential thing. And that we can disagree with each other without hating each other. And we can have mm. honest debate. We've had a little bit of debate on this, and on this thing, you know, there's been things where you've said it and, and I've said, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. And we we don't dislike each other, Thor. It's just part of the process of getting to a getting to a shared result. And I think that's, again, a really important thing, right? You're in that business, me, move towards a shared let, result. Go on. I agree. So before before we end, let me just share with you an experience that I had uh, with a team member a couple of years back. Um, I was willing to take the risk or to, to approach uh, a team member about a particular issue. And it just went from zero to a hundred in an instant. <laughs> this person got up, was screaming at me, left the room, came back in. And I made a decision there and then I thought, I'm not leave. I'm going to stand shoulder to shoulder with this person metaphorically until we go through, until we can get through this. They can, they can throw everything at me and they threw some stuff at me that was yeah. just not true yeah and in and my mind was like saying all of these things about this person to to get me out of the situation but i thought no i'm gonna stick with this it just takes it does take courage and it does take that willingness how did you frame that emma i think that's a really great example and and worth going over time on so how how did you you said, I'm not going to leave until I've sorted this. What was the outcome that you were looking for? And how did you know what that outcome was? So I've, uh, the, the outcome for me was, it was very, it was very uh, the scenario was this person was um, interrupting the other team yep. using their telephone. And we had a, we'd all, we all had an, agree, an agreement that we wouldn't do that. So yep. that was that's some very small thing. Yep. So I decided to, have a conversation about it um it went from zero to 100 but what i what i did say to this person was you know it's it's within our interests as team members we're, we're sitting across from each other every day to work collaboratively to support one another and they threw everything at me they threw the kitchen sink at me stuff that just really hurt that yeah. didn't and i thought this is not about me at all. And that's that's usually the case. It's it's never really about the person that they have they're in conflict with. And I thought, well, I, I said, look, I don't know what's going on for you. Um, but but I'm your I'm your manager and we work well together. You know, let's let's sort of 
come up with a plan as to how I can best support you. They didn't want to listen to me, but I, I was... I, your uh your internet let you down again there Emmett. so they didn't they didn't want to listen to you but am i back you're back so yeah they didn't want to listen to you but what I had <clears throat> yeah uh what i proposed but they they knew that i i mean i used the words that i'm not going anywhere i'm here you know, I'm here to support you. And I gave examples of how I supported. I think that's important. It's like, let's let's show you how I have been supporting you. Yeah. Um, and then give you an opportunity to respond. It took it took um the best part of a week for it to, to resolve. But like I say, they, they threw everything at me that just wasn't true. And what was the and, outcome? And I thought, they, because it's not did you come to some kind of agreement? <laughs> Um, yes, I think what I was, what I wasn't willing to do was to allow, um, this particular person to tell, to describe situations inaccurately. Yep. So we, we, you know, we had conversations about, you know, the truth and accuracy, which is important in building trust and maintaining relationships. And by the end of the week, they they had apologized about what they had said. It was never about me. And that's it. It really it usually isn't about the person. It's it's about what's going on for this individual, the private internal events. But what I did around the telephone usage thing was um that was the trigger. And I got the brunt of it. Um so you know this we continue to have a very um collaborative and, working and i guess you you obviously the whole point of that conflict i know there was a deep there's some deeper things that you wanted to go into with that person but really it was about look we have a rule that you don't go on your phone where when mm. we're in a team environment and, and and you're breaking that rule over and over again and, and, that, and that's not okay and what was the conclusion with with that piece? Did they agree to stop doing that? Did they? Absolutely, yeah. They, 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 it was it was such a simple act. Yeah, you know, they they would leave. It's not the thing it's is what happens, right? With it's we're, we're so fearful of the conflict that one little thing that is a big thing, right? If it, it seems like a little thing, we don't run our phone when we're working. But if that's the rule, mm -hmm. you know, this is one of the um back in 2008 actually the government did a, a deep dive into employee engagement and one of the, they found there was four key areas that will create a good environment where people work hard and like being there and one of them was values and that's having a set of rules that are upheld mm -hmm. and if those if you have a set of if you don't have a set of rules as an issue if you do have a set of rules but they're not upheld you have an even bigger issue because people hate unfairness right so mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's a silly thing or not we don't go on our phones if three of the team are doing it and one isn't and it doesn't get addressed it creates a horrible culture because then everyone's like well absolutely yeah so so you've got to well now it's see i know you're playing it down as being a trivial small little thing but it's not right it's a big thing mm. <laughs> big thing and and people will really put up their defenses when you confront them about this but but it's got to be done and you're going to have to go through that that difficulty I'm, I'm i'm really i think that's a great example to see how that you actually kept your calm i think that's a really important lesson that you've got that knowledge and that awareness to say look if this person gets angry it's not about me and i'm just going to stay calm but i'm also not going to back off and i think 
what mm. most of us do without thinking about it is we either we we fight back with aggression and, and shouting so we have a shout match or or we back down whereas you know it's fight or flight right whereas what, what you're saying is it's um discernment it's like no, i'm not going to fight back i'm not going to run away but i'm going to stick on this point until we come to some resolution yeah and and that shoulder to shoulder thing that i remember it very clearly in my head i thought i am going to stand shoulder to shoulder with this person even though they don't want it even though they hate me right now and i can see that and they're throwing everything at me i know that we can get over the hill on this if if you know if i stick with this person and in many ways that's what it's about it's i dare i say use the word abandonment when people you know they will avoid the conflict or they will back down that's abandonment yep you've you've started something yep you know it's important to stick with it and i've done that many a time in in my own life and then you just not only do you not get the result you also that you you don't like yourself you you beat yourself up over it in and in the short run it feels good short it's it's in the Mm. like right now it's like i can just step away from this oh just okay that's just we've said something they've had a response you know i've said something because it's been dealt with and you know it hasn't and then you just like i'm just gonna leave it now whereas you've got to be driven enough by that outcome to um Mm. to 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 get it right we we, we've gone over it i think we could keep talking about this and i think people will find very interesting i wouldn't be surprised if we get some requests to go deeper into that subject because i don't think there's enough about it uh, online or anywhere um i think it's a really important and hot topic and i think if we want to make the world better businesses better people's lives better this kind of information around how your own mind works and how to get into conflict and how it's not bad and how you can go about it is is vital so i can definitely see more content coming out on this topic thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and insights with us and for being so open with your own stories no thank uh, you mike and and uh sharing your examples um i appreciate it and i look forward to potentially having a conversation with you further in the future about this just tell us a little bit about where we can find out more about you if we'd like to connect with you so you've got your business site and your linkedin yes um i'm also i've been running a purpose in life project uh on a the science and art to living with purpose in life uh, been del- d- diving deep into that and so i started a um an instagram thing which nice. is how do we find that you parallel oh you yeah cool well what we'll do is we'll put um your linkedin your business site and your you parallel instagram project below the show in the notes good man brilliant thanks everybody Loved thanks it. Uh, and thank you on it take care Bye-bye.